the question here is, when we talk about nostalgia, is to what degree is the modernization project during the Soviet Union, and to what degree people, people's lives who were affected and shaped by, by that, to what degree is that legitimate, and to what degree do those have to be restored? Hello and welcome to the SRB podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics and history. I'm your host, Sean Guillory. A few things before we get started. In an effort to get some feedback and improve the show, I've created a survey about the show's content, quality, and to get listeners' general comments and suggestions. If you have a few minutes and want to tell me what you think, please go to seansrussiablog.org and fill out the survey. Many people have responded, and I thank all of you for your opinions. The survey will run until the middle of August. I will summarize the results in an upcoming podcast and blog post. Also, I'm always looking to hear listener comments and questions, so submit them at seansrussiablog.org, and I'll read some of them in the next podcast. This past week, I translated Ilya Budratsikist's comment, Neither Moscow nor NATO, notes on the NATO summit and the anti-war counter-summit in Warsaw for the website Left East. And I wanted to read part of its central point as a way for people to think about the current excited chatter about NATO and Putin's Russia. He writes, It appears that in an age where open war between sovereign states is impossible, hidden war permeates society. Any internal conflict turns into a main battlefield and to which the only option is military intervention. Hybrid militarization captures the public sphere so that every internal action can become a weapon of the enemy. Adopted by governments as an explanatory picture of the world, the idea of hybrid war is made real as it acquires the traits of state policy. Therefore, the classic laws of war are no longer valid, and the confrontation unfolds as a series of tacit, even morphing signs to be deciphered, not so much by politicians as by the military. Every sign gets a sign from the opposite side in response, which in turn receives a sign in response. Since the expansion of NATO into Eastern Europe and the Russian-Georgia War in the mid-2000s, the conflict has spun through a series of reciprocal phantasmal signs that gradually subsumes all varieties of societal manifestations. From the struggle over the public disclosure of information, the activities of Assange and Snowden, to the mass social movements, the Syrian revolution, protests in Moscow, and the Maidan in Kiev. Any independent political movement or any individual desire to change their country or the world for the better has been drawn into hybridity's turbid logic. The state response to the hybrid threat also doesn't have clear boundaries. It's not just an increasing arms race, but also a thorough strengthening of societal control. Countering hybrid war is the best justification concocted since the end of the Cold War for virtually all of the elite's actions. Only playing 
I'm pleased to welcome Maxime Edwards to the podcast to talk about his research into Soviet nostalgia in Armenia and Georgia. We tend to think about Soviet nostalgia at the macro level, like for example the efforts to rehabilitate Stalin or the effort to utilize memory to justify Putin's rule. What Maxime does is think about Soviet nostalgia twice removed, in the periphery of the Soviet Union and among the marginal populations within the South Caucasus. What we get, then, is nostalgia as a means to contend with the rapid social, economic, and political changes undergoing in those countries. Maxime Edwards is the commissioning editor of Open Democracy Russia. He writes on nationalism, migration, minorities, and memory, with a focus on post-Soviet countries. His most recent articles are Armenia to House World's Largest Yazidi Temple for Eurasianet, and co-authored with Thomas Rowley, In Ukraine, Not Only Heroes Deserve Justice, on Open Democracy. Here's Maxime Edwards. Your research deals with Soviet nostalgia among ethnic minorities in Armenia and Georgia. How did you get interested in this topic? A couple of years ago, I was in Armenia researching the ethnic minorities of Armenia, which is a very mono-ethnic country. And as it's known, you know, since the conflict with Azerbaijan, it's now about 98% ethnic Armenian. I felt it was a very understudied topic. Um, I spent a lot of time with the Assyrian community, the Yazidi community, various Russian, Greek, Jewish communities across the country. And I started to get to know people in the Assyrian community, which arrived there in the 1840s after the territory became part of the Russian Empire. And I suddenly realized this was an opportunity to get to know a culture of a, an ethnic group which, you know, was at that time under a sustained attack by ISIS and other forces in northern Iraq. And I began to get interested in the degree to which this particular ethnic group had developed its culture and its identity separately during the Soviet period. I remember being in a, an Assyrian village in, in Armenia called Yolaisor, which is an abandoned village. I was writing a micro-history about it, which I then published as a later feature piece. It was abandoned in the, the late 1940s, and a man I met there, an Assyrian, described what happened in uh, in the late 1980s to 1991 as, as the revolution. And from a Western European perspective, that's something that was, it was quite uncanny. Um, and I suppose if you want to have a, a succinct little story about how this interest arose, I suppose that that's certainly the best one. I would stress, though, that I think minority attitudes to nostalgia, I think, reflect kind of broader class ones and urban rural splits in, in Armenia and Georgia. So I think they have a qualitatively different role to play in nostalgia, but not necessarily quantitatively. And I think if I'd done the research in South Ossetia or Abkhazia, that would have been especially interesting. But practical reasons, obviously. Why is that? Well, because, um, I mean, as I'm going to come on to later, I believe that Certainly titular ethnic groups in, in the South Caucasus. So, you know, um, ethnic groups that had a, an autonomous region that had the institutions of, st of kind of semi-statehood. They often used Moscow and appealed, appealing to the federal center as a way to protect themselves against local nationalisms, against Georgian nationalism or Azeri nationalism or whoever the, the, the Republican people were, if you want to call it that way. And to this day in, in South Ossetia and Abkhazia, Victory Days are enthusiastically marked. Uh, as both as Russian satellite states, they naturally have a a certain um, narrative about the Soviet victory, which I think Sakashvili, post Sakashvili Georgia certainly tried to take a more critical approach to. Now, before we get into the specifics of how nostalgia is expressed and understood in, in these amongst these minorities, but also within Armenia and Georgia in general, let's talk a bit about what nostalgia is, because this is a weighty theoretical topic. How do you use it, and how do you understand it? 
Clearly, nostalgia is a truism to say it's the result of change. And I mean, the term was first created by a Swiss doctor, Johannes Hofer, in 1688 to describe homesickness of soldiers on the front. I see it essentially as a, a, an integral part of, of modernity, as a kind of a, as, a, as a social phenomenon. Um, for example, when seasonal labor was replaced by industrial labor, that created nostalgia for a lost rural life. So nostalgia in any form is a, is a fundamental part of modernity. Uh, the issue is that basic assumptions of what we see as post-socialist nostalgia, we see it as an ideological conviction. I quite like Svetlana Boim's book about nostalgia when she divides it into restorative and reflective. She sees the, the those who are restorative nostalgia as, uh, you know, nation builders, people, guardians of national culture, they don't see themselves as nostalgics. So they simply see themselves as pursuing the truth and rebuilding a national ideal. And the nostalgic, the reflectives, I suppose, are the more the, um, the writers and the diarists and people who are not seeking to, to kind of make any social or political project on the basis of that. It's a sense of, of a completely lost sense of uh, youth or, um, or history. In my experience, those who have lost out on the collapse of the USSR, also resent their description of their beliefs as nostalgic. They see it as a, a logical result of the collapse of social services and stability, which they're attuned to. So it's important to note that nostalgia, in this sense, is an ascriptive term. Um, clearly, people don't, certainly in post-Soviet countries, they don't generalize their experiences of their youth as post-socialist nostalgia. So the way we talk about post-socialist nostalgia tells a lot about our own ideological biases. For some, I think it's it's somewhat elitist. It's a it's a catch-all term that describes stagnant old ways, people who are not dynamic enough to approach the the post-socialist transition with the right kind of zeal, and that links to the kind of language we see in transitionology, the kind of behaviours which uh, essentialize that pulling the country back from whatever direction it, it's chosen. And so the the question here is when we talk about nostalgia, is to what degree is the modernization project during the Soviet Union and to what degree people, people's lives who were affected and shaped by, by that, to what degree is that legitimate and to what degree do those have to be rethought? So a final really, really excellent insight that Svetlana Boim had into this was from her was her strongest recollection of a Soviet childhood was a children's playground from the Khrushchev period in the form of a Sputnik and space rockets. And she said that was nostalgia for a sense of progress. So in that sense, I think there are probably a lot of similarities between nostalgias, not only from the Soviet Union or post-socialist countries, but from all of the kind of developmental states, these states in the mid-20th century, which relied on very strong centralized macroeconomic developments and investment that had high levels of urbanization and, and high levels of change. Uh, so I think it, it's a sign of the times uh, rather than a sign of ideology. It, it's, a diff it's a difficult balance. I think it's, from my observation, it's a way of articulating marginality, a way of articulating loss, the loss of an entire doxa. As Bourdieu would say, it's the unspoken social rules of, of, of how we move throughout life and the ideology which legitimizes those people's achievements. And finally, I mean, my, my question is that I think has been the most difficult for, with my research is how do you problematize this idea that post-socialist nostalgia is not just a kind of ideological conviction without also silencing the agency of people that might hold that nostalgia? I'm, of course, more familiar with this expression in Russia, and you get the fairly regular articulation of the idea of, well, that person just has a Soviet mentality, or if it's meant to be more disparaging, this person is a Sovok. Is there a type of language like that also in, say, Armenia and Georgia? I think totally, certainly more to do with Georgia. Certainly during the Saakashvili period, I think a great, you know, a degree of, of I don't know if there's a, a particular kind of, of word in Georgian or Armenian that, that would translate to Savog, but certainly I, I think the, the kind of language which Saakashvili was using and the kind of delegitimization of 
the blowing up of Soviet, the huge Soviet war memorial in, in Kutaisi, for example, the, the reframing of the entire Soviet period as an occupation. I think that did create, certainly for people in, who were involved with decision-making circles and people who are more on some kind of political elite, I think it did make overt expression of post-Soviet nostalgia and a post-Soviet Soviet era normality. I think it made that a degree of political taboo. You do have, of course, the idea of Gopniki, people for kind of the, the I guess, the sub-proletarians, as, as, as some people have framed them, in the South Caucasus, uh, which have in Armenia, they're called Rabiz, Raboches, uh, Kustva, and I have detected some kind of, you know, kind of parallels there between seeing that the Rabiz is someone who's particularly more into the, the Soviet criminal language and chanson music. There's a degree of Russification there, I think. Now, from what your your description of nostalgia, I'm quite interested in this, so we can dwell on it a bit. You know, here I am associating issues of loss, issues of displacement, and you're putting it very well into the framework of social, economic, cultural change. Is nostalgia an expression in which one does to re-anchor themselves in shifting social sands to to reorient their their position to some extent? I think possibly, but I mean, one, one issue that I wanted to touch on here when it comes to, I think we will talk about this when it comes to Stalin, is post-socialist nostalgia as a reflection of atomization is not necessarily something you can, you can use it to reorient yourself and to make sense of, of, of an, you know, uncertain economics and social situation. But I don't, I don't think it's necessarily a, a kind of a plausible basis for some kind of social movement or way of articulating a, a, a different approach to politics. It's something that you see a lot with uh, leftist thinkers when they talk about post-socialist nostalgia. Zizek, Boudin have both written that they see post-socialist nostalgia as the socialist ideology emptied of any of the claims for social justice or a fairer society. And that's certainly true in its commercialized form. But uh, you notice this a lot. I think there's been research done uh, in about hometown effect and the role of Stalin as a local personality in Gori in his hometown in Georgia. And the researchers, this is uh, Peter Kabachnik's recent articles, um, he's, he's found that this very, very, very rarely translates into actual political participation or kind of an articulation of, of party, party political preferences. It's atomizing, I think, in, in, in every, every sense of the word. Most of the, the writing on nostalgia tends to look at it the, the macro level. So they're looking at, say, nostalgia in Russia, which is it's mostly most of the discourses around nostalgia in Russia. But you're looking at it from first, it, you're taking it two steps. You're taking one, you're looking at it from the Soviet periphery. So from the South Caucasus. And then you're looking at it from a periphery within those societies, which is from the position of the minority or minority groups. What does that give us as opposed to the more standard central look at nostalgia and its expressions? Well, I think one of the obvious parallels here, if we're going to look, go back to the, the macro level, I'm going to compare that with the micro level. I've often, I've thought a lot about the, the parallels between Russian attitudes to the USSR and Serbian attitudes towards Yugoslavia. And certainly, I think that for Russians or rather Russophones, I think that's an important difference as the kind of the unmarked state bearing people. I think for them, the loss of a, of a wider country and a wider kind of space was a, a, a more of a, I mean, Jeffrey Hosking wrote that the, the Russians were the only nation that experienced 
the Soviet collapse as, as, as a loss. And they were the standard, he, wrote, he writes that they're the standard bearers in the Soviet revolution who were rendered anonymous. And I think in comparison to the South Caucasus, where people, of course, also lament the loss of a kind of greater space, a greater, well, not greater, I guess they would see it in both senses of the word, or a larger space for making personal relationships, familiarity with other cultures, or it's simply a bigger state. I think for them, there's less of a sense of, of national loss and national pride as a result of the collapse of that state. I think that came later when it came to the, the ensuing ethno-political conflicts. So I think, yeah, certainly center, on a center-periphery level, that's very different. But I think it's also helps here to, to consider the way in which the Soviet periphery was colonized, not only during the Russian Empire, but also, I guess you could say, within the Soviet period. Is it, it was a very intense focus of modernization. And it's something that I think Soviet filmmakers and artists particularly focused on. You, you know, this famous uh, film by Mikhail Kalatozov, Salt for Svenetia, when there's a small village in, in rural Georgia, which doesn't have enough salt. And the uh, the Soviet state, you know, in its munificence and its generosity, carves a road through solid granite to make sure they get this. There's also a famous film by um, Sagogo Baridze from the early 20s, a very similar story about the, the problems of rural life and the, the sense that the Soviet state could, even in this kind of, I guess to use the most Orientalist language, wild kind of periphery of the Russian Empire, they could they could modernize it, they could drag it kicking and screaming into a, a kind of bright future. I, I suppose in that sense, Georgia and Eastern, Eastern, Eastern Armenia, the territory which is now the Republic of Armenia, have always historically, certainly throughout the Russian, Russian Empire, they've accessed the Western world through Russia and its rule in the Caucasus. And that's a very different one from the Russian sense of loss. And I think that's also a strong way in which people frame post-socialist nostalgia. I think a, a, a really strong element as well in the South Caucasus is multi-ethnicity. Certainly during the Soviet period, these states were often much more multi-ethnic. I have a strong sense that the only sense in which people now in Armenia and Azerbaijan can fondly remember their lost Azeria or Armenian neighbors is in the rubric of post-socialist nostalgia. You, I mean, there's also the important fact that during the Soviet period, because of the way the state was structured with multi-ethnic territories, nationalities had to prove that they were the titular nation. The, the autochthonous nation, the nation which had lived on that territory since time immemorial. And it's no surprise that from the late 1980s, the national leaders of many independence movements, think of Al-Adzenbar in, in Abkhazia, Gamsakhurdia in Georgia, Terpetrosian in, um, in Armenia, they were, uh, they were academics, they were historians. So in that sense, I think it's a, it also makes sense to consider, uh, to end up on another anecdote, Gamsakhurdia, first president of Georgia, very ultra-nationalist. We visited Achara largely at that point, historically a Muslim region of Western Georgia in 1990. Uh, he stood up uh, on a stage in Batumi, the capital, and told Ajarans, Ajarans, remember that you are Georgians. Uh, most Ajarans thought they were Georgians until Gamsakhurdia had told them they weren't, at which point people then talked of a kind of a low-scale revitalization of Soviet symbolism in the region because of all of the cultural symbols which are accessible to show some resistance to the new Georgian state, the Soviet symbols were, were the most the most familiar one. Would you say that the development of Soviet nostalgia in Georgia and Armenia amongst minorities comes in part as a response to the ethnic conflict that erupted after the collapse of the Soviet Union? Yeah, I certainly do. I certainly think in Georgia, the figure of Gamsakhurdia and the, the fear that he instilled in minority populations, whether Armenians, whether Avar, whether Ossetian, most and any minority populations in Georgia who I've interviewed always volunteered Gamsakhurdia as a, a really strong figure in, in their justification for 
their views of the Soviet Union and the inter-ethnic harmony which came before. And as we know, you know, there, there were elements of ethnic conflict during this late Soviet period in the South Caucasus. It wasn't entirely a, entirely kind of a brotherly nations, but, um, I think the experience of nationalist government in Georgia certainly led to a degree of, of rose-tinted reflections, yeah, of that period. What role does nationalism amongst the minority groups play? Is it, so is the articulation of Soviet nostalgia and with in mind the idea that in the Soviet period, you had to prove yourself as a titular nation, you had to be recognized by the state as a legitimate ethnic group with legitimacy to the area in which you inhabit. Is Soviet nostalgia mixed in with nationalism for these groups? To some degree, I think it is. Um, I mean, I think a really important thing to note, particularly with Georgia's majority, the biggest minority populations in Georgia at the moment, the Armenians and the Azeris, is that they didn't have separate national territories in Georgia, even though they numbered several hundred thousand, which led to a fact that many of the representatives of those ethnicities would, they would go and study in the neighboring republic, they would study in Armenia, they would study in Azerbaijan, they would get a job in Armenia, they would get a job in Azerbaijan, they would also study in Russian. You had a situation where I was uh, taking an interview with an ethnic Ossetian in eastern Georgia who said their school in their village during the Soviet period had taught a German Rossetian and local villagers had demanded that they be taught Georgian, but they were told this would be too much of a strain on grow, young growing children to study four languages of wildly different linguistic groups. So in that sense, I mean, this is one thing that I think when people talk about Russian and Georgia as the kind of the occupier's language, that only makes sense if you consider them older generations of ethnic minorities who still don't speak Georgian, if you consider them occupiers too. So the, I think the Russian language really is, is a, among minorities in both countries is a really strong driver in that sense. Now, both Armenia and Georgia have histories as independent nations before coming under the Russian rule, Russian, the Imperial Russian Empire, and then, of course, in the Soviet Union, and they both briefly have their own independent states after uh, World War I and the Revolution. So how does the Soviet experience fit into the respective national narratives now? Right. Well, I mean, looking back at the collapse of the Soviet period from the sense of, of the, the periphery in Georgia and Armenia, when the dice were rolled in 1989 and again in 1991, you know, some of the USSR's first, I suppose you could call inter, inter-ethnic or however you want to phrase it, flashpoints came in these very loyal republics in the Caucasus, you know, in Armenia. I think it's important to distinguish from Georgia, the reaction you could call anti-Russian. For example, you know, the, the nationalist movements in Georgia, Gamsakhodia, that, that had, that had a lot of their uh, background in, in ecological movements in the late 80s. And in Armenia, the reaction was, I think, simply anti-center. Uh, Armenian independence movements, the Karabakh Committee at the time, did have contact with Russian rules. And at that time, during the Karabakh War, the beginnings of the Karabakh War, the KGB and these, the Soviet state were perceived as helping the Azeris with the Operation Ring against Armenian communities and so on. So I think that's a really important distinction. Certainly, Armenia's narrative of trauma is very interesting to compare with the post-Sakashvili attitude towards decommunization. And since, in the sense that even Stalinist repressions in Armenia framed in the rubric of the enduring Armenian trauma. There's also, if it's a simple, a cursory look at the commemorative dates in both states is, can really help like this. Georgia sees itself as a restored republic. Gamsakhodia even declared all treaties signed after 1920 to be null and void. Independence is celebrated on May the 26th, and that's the, that's the restoration of independence. Whereas Armenia celebrates Republic Day on the 28th of May, which is the independence of the First Republic of Armenia, and the Independence Day on the 21st of September, which is independence from the USSR. 
You hear people referring to this to the, the Soviet Armenia as the second Armenian Republic. So th- I think in some sense, many Armenians and Armenian historians see the Soviet period as a, a kind of inevitable, but maybe in some ways regrettable period of modernization. Uh, the fact that there was an Armenian territory, which was called the Armenian Republic, which in which the Armenian language was the, the state language, was really important. The fact that Stalin invited Armenians from across the diaspora in the late 40s to settle the Armenian SSR, it adds to that. The fact that he pressed sort of claims to historic Armenian territories in the late 40s against Turkey. So I, I think the Soviet past in Armenia is seen as a kind of I wouldn't want to say a dead time, but it's the kind of focus. It's not the focus of any mnemonic project. It's not really challenged on a wide scale, but there have been some attempts, I think. For example, 2014, uh, there was an attempt to erect a statue to Anastas Mikoyan, um, Stalin's right-hand man, in uh, in Yerevan. And uh, that did lead to a significant degree of public debate and condemnation. So I think the Soviet past in Armenia is something which is, as people would say, it's just history. It's not there to be criticized. It's not there to be expanded. It's simply history. So for Armenia, there is a certain ambivalence. But is the Soviet period considered somewhat of a derailment of Armenian development or Armenian civilization? I don't think so to the same degree. Um, simply, certainly in Georgia with the, the Georgian Democratic Republic, which was the longest lasting of the three South Caucasian states and received far much more international recognition and was also a much more stable state, then you do hear that quite a lot. You hear uh, you hear the discussion that the, the Georgian, the Mensheviks in Georgia at the time had a, a generous program of land reform. They were on the way to building a, uh, you know, a European country, quote unquote. You never hear that really to the same degree with the First Republic of Armenia because it was, it was an embattled state at the end of a genocide, which I, had lasted for tenuously for two years. I think in some ways also these really important elements of, of national narratives and certainly in Armenia, is if it's a traumatic national narrative, it helps people to make sense of their individual tragedies. Uh, And I think in some sense, this is where Armenia's national narrative has been able to make sense of what happened in Karabakh, what happened during the after the in the immediate years after the genocide. You could say I've heard a Georgian say that this is something which Sarkashvili tried to do to Georgia after 2008. The narrative before was the triumph of European values and Rose Revolution over Shevardnadze's enforced clientelism and proto-quasi-Soviet stagnation, but this wasn't something I don't, which, which stuck as much resonance with, with in Georgian society. I, I think it's also very complex with Georgia because you have the idea of a more, from an Armenian perspective, you have the idea of a more privileged nationality with wider institutional links. Scott has published a new book about the wide role of Georgian elites in the formation of the Soviet state, high living standard in Georgian yeah. SSR, production of luxury goods. So I think there's a lot of ambiguity there. Now, you, you already mentioned a bit about the Stalin cult in, in Georgia, and I, and I want you to, to talk a bit about it more. Talk about the Stalin cult and where it fits in the landscape of memory and history in, in Georgia today. It's interesting with looking at Saakashvili's decommunization campaign, because it did seem to me during the time that Stalin was one of those figures that he approached somewhat more gingerly. I mean, the Stalin Museum in Gori, there has been for a long time an attempt to try and remake the museum as a museum of Stalinism rather than Stalin, or an attempt to form a kind of um, parallel exhibition, which would be an exhibition about Stalinist totalitarianism, so that visitors could get both sides of the story, as it were. I think Stalin, as when I was speaking with my Georgian respondents and also ethnic minorities, uh, again functions as a kind of, not so much as a historical figure, as almost a kind of folk hero. I mean, the, the number of the number of stories you hear about Stalin, uh, the fact, you know, people say that he, he was born with the same, the same jacket that he died with and 
kind of, you know, folk hero stories about this, which are, you know, compared to the behavior of people like Bidzina Ivanishvili and kind of corrupt post-Soviet oligarchs. In some ways, I suppose it, it's, it's, it's very much, it's, it's not as much about Stalin the man as, as Stalin the myth. And I think it's important in Georgia, particularly during de-Stalinization under, in Khrushchev's, and during the Khrushchev period, to look at the riots which happened in Tbilisi as a result of that, the sense in which Stalin worship became some degree separate from reverence to the institutions of the Soviet state. It became a way of kind of a nascent way of articulating some sense of wounded Georgian national pride. South Ossetia would be very interesting in this sense because Stalin is also seen as a representative of Ossetian national pride. Um, there's some belief that he had an Ossetian, uh, Ossetian grandparent, I think, and that Jugna means uh, a bird in Ossetic from uh, Jugashvili, his surname. So I, I, I suppose, um, an interesting thing from my respondents as well is the fact that Stalin, uh, there's an important gender aspect here as well. Stalin is seen as a, a real strong Georgian man who made Georgia relevant in the eyes of uh, the closest colonial imperial power in a way which um, weaker post-Soviet leaders, they, they, they haven't. Um, it's interesting when you see people justify their their attitudes towards what happened with the Soviet Union by with the collapse of the Soviet Union in Georgia by using Stalinist rhetoric about nationalism. They say that the post-Soviet Georgia is not really independent. It is a pawn in the, the puppets, uh, is a puppet in the power of, of NATO and Western European powers. And therefore, the, the wars in Abkhazia and South Ossetia were simply a game played against us by various nebulous elites somewhere. So, I, yeah, I suppose it, on, on the level of myth, Stalin is still a really important figure. Yeah. So what Stalin is the myth? So is it the Stalin of World War II? the Stalin of the great modernizer, or the Stalin of the, and here I'm thinking of the more gendered aspect, the, the Stalin of the rough and tough revolutionary bank robber in the Georgian underground? Or is it a mixture of all of those? I think, yes, I think a mixture, but certainly the latter, particularly in the social people from the social classes in Georgia that have been the most left out of the country's post-Soviet economic and social programs, that is the one that they invoke the most. I also think that Beria's work on the history of the revolution, the history of the Bolshevik movement in South Caucasus played a really important role in this small and kind of not very well-known tourist site on the outskirts of Tbilisi is the Stalin Printing Press Museum in Avalabari, where Stalin is alleged to have been responsible for printing seditious pamphlets and leaflets for the Bolshevik cause. But he was never actually there. I mean, it was it was a part of one of Beria's fabrications about his role in in uh, in the South Caucasus. Yeah, that would make sense to me in terms of if you're speaking of in terms of a mythology that that's what originally comes to mind is this you know something out of a American Western film, <laughs> you know. <laughs> So an interesting figure I would not necessarily compare, but contrast with uh, the Stalin cult in, in Georgia. And one of the issues of doing any comparative kind of survey or overview of Georgian Armenia is simply that there is no analogous figure to in Armenia. There are the Mikoyan brothers, of course, and there is Stepan Shaomian, who was actually born in Tbilisi. He was an ethnic Armenian. He was known as the Caucasian Lenin, played a very important role in the propagation of, of Bolshevism and, and radical ideals in, in the South Caucasus. And it's very interesting to look at the degree to which his legacy has changed since the conflict in, over Nagorno-Karabakh. Uh, Xiaomian was one of the Baku commissars who were then ousted in 1918. He was, he boarded a ship across the Caspian Sea, fleeing 
Baku that was then occupied by, by Turkish forces and was killed in what is now Turkmenistan on the other side of the Caspian Sea. It's very interesting. He took an interview with people in Stepanovan, a city which, uh, is, which was where he used to spend his summers in northern Armenia, which is named after him, who say that it's the Karabakh War, the fact that Xiaomian is seen as being, as being killed by Turks or killed by Central Asians or killed by precursors to today's Azeris, as people would say. They see that as um, him taking on a kind of national, a kind of national figure, a kind of national heroism, which he probably would have found a little revulsive. Xiaomian was famously anti-nationalist. He opposed the, the idea that there should even be separate national territories in the Soviet Union. He was much more for a kind of economic federal union rather than a national one. So in, in that sense, he's a really interesting figure to see how, how his, his historical legacy changed as a re- result of post-Soviet conflicts. So like in most post-Soviet states, Soviet nostalgia is part of a consumer market. A lot of products are produced in ter- using Soviet symbolism. There are restaurants that are use Soviet themes and use Soviet names. How is Soviet nostalgia commodified in Armenia and Georgia? I suppose the short answer to that compared to other other areas of the post-socialist world in which this is a big phenomenon is that it's not. And the reason, there are several reasons why I believe that that it's not the case. I I think it's interesting to start. So in the center of of Budapest, which is a country which has experimented with a degree of post-socialist nostalgia, there is a a, a small street which has two Soviet socialist-themed kind of restaurants, cafes on it. One is the uh, clearly for American tourists. It's got the pictures of Mao. It's got the antlers on the Communist Party. It's got the various themed vodka cocktails, etc. It's very, very in-your-face advertisement of kind of Soviet political values. The other one is the, uh, the for the local Hungarians, a kind of retro cafe from the 70s with Hungarian-produced televisions, bicycles, children's toys that plays very schmaltzy 1970s Hungarian crooning pop music. And in, in some sense, I think it's really important to separate the externalized view of what post-socialist nostalgia is in this very politicized sense from simply retro. Everybody misses their youth. It's also important, I think, to think that Georgia and Armenia are much poorer. There's simply less of a tourist market for this and even less of a a domestic market. In terms of conscious nostalgia and conscious commercialized nostalgia, I think the Warsaw Pact countries are really interesting in this sense compared to the South Caucasus because I I think they're countries which have a very, very high level of foreign direct investment after the transition. So I think for them, the sense of autarky, the sense of these were televisions, these were cars, these were bicycles that we produced at a time when so much of the economy is influenced by, you know, I suppose, German firms, Austrian firms, French firms, firms from all over the, the rest of the European Union, I think is, is a really powerful symbol. In that sense, I suppose it's it's a sense of when we were great, or I suppose um, at least self-sufficient. Uh, commercialization of South Caucasus is really interesting in that the, the commercialization of the Soviet past is partly aimed at Russian tourists. And I think it plays on some quite interesting Orientalist and you could say demeaning stereotypes of people from the South Caucasus. I mean, there are endless Mimino restaurants. Uh, Kaskaya Pienitsa restaurant chain in Yomhan. You know that if you remember Mimino, the hometowns of the two main characters, Dilijan and Telavi, Telavi and George, Dilijan and Armenia, they've experimented with this to a modest degree. They've, their restaurants and cafes and, and, uh, monuments to the film. I think it's a testament that for many people, the 1970s, the Zastoy period and the Brezhnev is a really key element in Soviet nostalgia. It's the first time when the state to some degree kind of left people alone and provided a degree of private space. But I think that came with a, a even deeper corruption and an ideology whose only purpose was to perpetuate itself. So I think that is, that's the, 
that is the commercialized Soviet nostalgia, I think, in, that I've seen in, in Georgia and Armenia. Now, in addition to this research that you're doing, which is absolutely fascinating, uh, you're also one of the editors at Open Democracy's Russia section. Talk a bit about what ODR's mission is and, and how it seeks to cover Russia. What type of Russia does it want to communicate to people? You may have read an op-ed that we wrote about why we don't publish articles about Putin. And I guess that's probably the most obvious and probably the, the most open way in which we've discussed our hopes and our aims for how we aim to cover the post-Soviet space, not just Russia. As editors, I think part of it is that it's not so much that we like to cover, aim to cover unreported issues as we aim to we aim to find the underreported angles to the issues which so clearly in the spotlight. I think stories from the Russian regions, for example, really have hammered home for us the fact that stories from the peripheries aren't necessarily peripheral if they're contextualized in the right way, if they're framed as a result of state policy. Um, I think there are some fantastic Russian sites doing work on this. Takia Dala, for example, really does fantastic work about social issues in Russia. Uh, but it's important to frame these as the, the results of policies in Moscow and the results of economic and social circumstance rather than, I think, explaining them away as the kind of anthropological suffering of the Russian people, which I think is a very demeaning way of social, social inequality. So we see balance as, in a sense, compensating for the elements of reporting on Russia which are left out of uh, common media discourse. A big element of those is labor rights. Another element of those is minority rights, which are not framed in a kind of uh, popular eth ethnography, but framed as yeah, as also within a kind of broader struggle for political and social rights. I think one thing that you see really with labor rights, such as something I know that you've covered in Russia and post-socialist countries, is you end up with a focus on corruption, the labor protests and poor working conditions as a result of entrenched corruption or whatever kind of post-socialist morass has you know, is is perpetuating this. And I feel in some ways that's a very neoliberal paradigm and way of looking at things. Um, it depoliticizes the results of actual policies which are not friendly to working people and are not friendly for pursuing a kind of socially just and egalitarian politics. Finally, the way you guys cover stuff, this, the mission that you have to present a Russia from the periphery, to present issues that certainly are not part of the mainstream discourse, this, of course, presents a major challenge for readership because, let's be frank, most people who would read in English don't care about these issues for Russia. So is this a consideration you guys have in terms of, well, how do you frame things to appeal to a readership? Or are you just carving out a niche and the readers come because they come? Well, that's a reason why we've been trying to broaden the kind of writers that we work with, not just academics and professional journalists, but also activists, community organizers, anybody that has something to say and one and a half thousand words they feel they can say it in, in a succinct way. I suppose partly the once on a purely stylistic level, um, I think bringing back the uh, the feature piece, the well-written, well-reported feature piece from the periphery as a way of explaining these issues is uh, is a really powerful way of getting people to care. Uh, although we wrote, of course, that we don't write articles about Putin, we write articles about how articles about Putin are written. Um, and in that sense, I think that we, a lot of what we do is quite reflective. We published an article recently about how Western media engage with the Pankisi Gorge and terrorism and uh, radicalization in, from from Georgia. 
We've published articles as well about national media's response to the crisis in Moldova. I feel in both of those cases, something in which we aim to give readers the right kind of context to then be able to try and do dig deeper themselves and that we hope that we provide the right kind of context so that more mainstream media outlets that are not able to dig into the social and political background of these the the news cycle we hope that that our longer pieces our feature pieces are able to contextualize for our readers uh, issues which in more mainstream media be covered in a, a slightly more superficial and disengaged way That was Maxime Edwards, the commissioning editor at Open Democracy Russia. He writes on nationalism, migration, minorities, and memory, with a focus on post-Soviet countries. His most recent articles are Armenia to House World's Largest Yazidi Temple for Eurasianet, and co-authored with Thomas Raleigh, In Ukraine, Not Only Heroes Deserve Justice on Open Democracy. If you'd like to submit a question to Maxime, please go to seansrussiablog.org and click on Submit a Question. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter, like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog, write a review, or recommend the show to your friends. You can also support the podcast by making a donation at seansrussiablog.org. A big thanks to those who've contributed. You can find past shows on iTunes and SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from seansrussiablog.org as well. Until next time, bye! Моя Марусечка, моя ты куколка, моя Марусечка, моя ты душенька, моя Марусечка, а жить так хочется, я весь горю тебя, молю, будь моей женой.